Welcome back to What You Will Learn. My name is Adam Ashton. And my name is Adam Jones. Today, we're taking you through the best bits of The Innovator's Dilemma by Clayton Christensen, when new technologies cause great firms to fail. seems that in business uh, and in big companies, success is extremely difficult to sustain because if you look across the history of businesses, you've got a whole bunch of big companies that are killing it. They're at the top of their industries. They're super successful. But then you look in a decade or two later, they're in the middle of the pack, maybe at the back of the pack, maybe they've carked it all together. There's a bit of an issue here because when they are super strong and super successful, there's a few things that uh, sow the seeds from that position that actually cause the company's ultimate demise, despite being so strong. And that's why we call it the innovator's dilemma. So specifically, it rears its head when a type of innovation, something that's coming through that's somewhat disruptive in the industry, arises at the very low end of the market and it takes on simple, unassuming applications. And explaining this paradox is the real purpose of this book. So it's not this book, it's not about just why companies fail because plenty of companies fail all the time if they're shit companies. Really, it's about good companies that fail because you'd think, oh, if there's good companies at the top of their industry, they've done well. Clearly, they've done a lot of things right to get to the, this position, but then they still fail. That's what this is all about. Yeah, it's counterintuitive because sometimes the managers who are classified as good, if you get your classic MBA or something, the ones that we try to emulate and admire, um, even the ones who seem to be able to innovate and execute, uh, and even the ones who listen to customers or invest aggressively in new technologies to provide their customers with better products, or the ones who carefully study market trends and see where the market's going, all these things that sound like beautiful business practice, these are the things that cause them to lose their positions of leadership. So the widely accepted principles of this good management are in fact only situationally appropriate, right? So sometimes they're the right thing to do and sometimes they cause all the sorts of shit that causes the demise. If you go back to the early 1900s and and say you wanted to set up a little business drilling for oil, probably a bit bigger than a little business, but every time you thought, okay, let's try and find some oil here, you drill down 90% of the time, it's dry. That's a pretty shocking strike rate, but... If you've got your you've got your venture capitalists coming in, you've got your scientists coming in, you get some geological researchers coming in, and they all develop different theories about okay, how can we actually work out if there's going to be oil deep down below here or not before we actually drill? Because it takes a lot of money and effort and a lot of waste to drill if ninety percent of the time you're coming up dry. And what they actually did through all of this research and development and theories, they found theories that can actually give you a sixty percent strike rate, which is a hell of a lot better than ten percent. So now if you use these theories properly, you can actually drill down and realize that sixty percent of the time you're actually going to strike oil. 100%. So, a lot of the stories of the companies... Not 100%, 60%. <laughs> 60%. 100% of the time, it works 60%. 60% of the time. That's it. So, decades ago, we're going to tell a few stories. It's like the old companies drilling for oil. They didn't really know the things that set them up for failure. Um, so, they were failing so much because of these reasons. But through understanding and studying some of the the, the practices and the business theory that Clayton Christensen goes through, we can find ways where when we go and drill for oil, we're going to actually start striking at a very much higher strike rate through the use of knowledge. So this is what Clayton does. He strives to bring innovators, entrepreneurs, and the people who invest in them the same kind of useful theories that geologists brought to, to oil drilling. So let's talk about those big companies and what actually happens. So when they face with a new entrant, who comes into the market, there might be some sort of disruptive innovation that's happening. The new entrant who comes in only 
is a small part of the incumbent's business, right? So let's think of what happens when you got Amazon, who just first came on the scene, and they were up against Barnes and Noble. Barnes and Noble got huge revenues coming through, and these little internet business called Amazon, you know, they're only making the small bucks. It's not even worth Barnes and Noble's time to actually deal and compete with Amazon at the time. So really, they just let them have that market at the very start. Yeah, there was no point for them to say, well, this is like not even 1% of our business selling books online. We're, we're making so much money selling books in bookstores. Amazon, they can come and they can do whatever they want. We can give them the online sales because they didn't really care. They were making so much money that there was just this one tiny little part with very low margins really that they were like, okay, whatever, take it. <laughs> take it, take it for sure. And what happens next isn't very funny because <laughs> the, uh, the new entrant who comes in with a very small uh, low end of the market, always moves up market and ca- captures mm. significant market share and has different implications that will come across later in the episode. And the thing, the thing is here, so they've, they've given up their lowest margin thing, but then the next thing they attack is the second lowest margin. So, then you're like, oh, it's a second lowest. They can probably have that as well. All of a sudden, the next thing's the third lowest. All of a sudden, the next thing's the fourth lowest. They kind of keep creeping and creeping and creeping. Yeah, 100%. So, think about Amazon, right? So, Bazon... Bazon? <laughs> Sounds like an atom or a particle. Bezos. So he understood that he could find a way to disrupt the book industry and that's why he took the advantage of the internet as the new distribution channel. Um, and they launched and they grew exponentially from the very start. Barnes & Noble's on the other hand, a few years later, two or three years later, they first launched their own website. So it took them a fair while but when they launched their website, Perhaps it was a little bit too late and Amazon's already quite far down the road of owning this whole new distribution channel. That's why Bezos right now is is kicking, kicking ass and kicking yeah. goals and maybe Barnes & Noble's not doing so well. <laughs> Another story is uh, Toyota popping into from Japan into the North American market. They didn't come in with their big, fancy, expensive cars. What they popped in first with was a little tiny subcompact Corolla and the big gas guzzler North American car companies like General Motors, like, oh, this little tiny Corolla, no one wants that piece of shit anyway, Mm. so we'll let them have it. But then from that little subcompact, they kind of built up and built up and built up. They had the Tercel, the Camry, the Avalon, the Forerunner, the Sequoia, and they kind of built up and built up and built up. Uh, All along the way, General Motors is saying, you know what, let's just let them have this lowest profit, low margin part of the business, we don't really care. And then Toyota pops up with Lexus at the very top end of the market as well, and now they're competing really with the big boys the whole way along. Every step away, there was good, sound, reasonable logic from the management's point of view. Another one that's very popularized that everyone knows about, comes up all the time in books, is the story of Kodak and its famous collapse um, because at one stage, they were 100% dominant in the industry. I feel mm. like they had a monopoly, right? Like yeah, when they first like started taking sure. photos, that was super profitable. But we obviously know that they crashed and they basically got overtaken by every company in the emerging field. So Kodak, they own the whole market of film. You take the, the you take the photo, you go and get it developed. Kodak make a whole bunch of money, um, and that was great. But on the other hand, uh, what happened when digital uh, photography came in as the next big thing? It was quite a speculative technology in the very start. It was kind of pretty shitty technology because mm. the photos look nothing like as good as the print ones <laughs> yeah. in films. So you know, see, I was like, look at those little things. They're taking they're taking some part of the small niche market. We're not going to worry about them. We're going to stick to our core business here. The rest is history. 
And there's plenty more stories uh, that follow a very similar trajectory. If you think about Blockbuster versus Netflix, if you think of the music industry, records and cassettes and CDs and iTunes and Spotify, if you think of smartphones versus Blackberries, all over the same kind of patterns repeat. Yeah, you got taxis versus Uber, you got hotels versus Airbnb, uh, you've got virtually all newspaper companies. So there's all sorts of disruptions that are happening across many industries. Um, that's not to say that it has been some success stories who are doing some things right, which we're also going to cover. But uh, most notably, they're probably exceptions to the rule. Most new technologies and innovations that come along really just improve what's already there. They improve existing performance. That's what they call sustaining technologies. They're the things that make improvements to what you're already doing along the kind of dimensions that you're already currently operating on. So we really need to distinguish the difference here between what we call sustaining technology, sort of just moving the dial of uh, existing thinking, not changing any paradigms about anything, and compare these to disruptive technologies because it makes a huge difference when it comes to the innovator's dilemma because most of the time, uh, technology advances, they are sustaining in character. Occasionally, however, things are very different when disruptive technologies emerge because these are the things that begin as, as very small items that no one really cares about or thinks are going to be a big deal, but obviously topple entire industries and the things that uh, undermine those big companies. Yeah, disruptive technology that comes along, it brings a completely different value proposition than what was available before. Uh, generally, these disruptive technologies, they underperform the established technologies in the mainstream market at first. They often have very few, if any, very small fringe customers. Um, they often are maybe cheaper, simpler, smaller, uh, sometimes often more more convenient to use but really they're just not really worth worrying about at the beginning. There's a crucial decision here when a disruptive technology comes along or a sustaining technology. There's an old quote that says the pioneers are the ones with the arrows in their backs, mm. right? So if you're the one uh, who's taking on this new innovation, whether it be disruptive or sustaining technology, you're going to make the decision, are you going to be a leader who actually takes it on yourselves or are you going to follow behind other companies? Yeah, you might say, oh, we're going to be the most innovative, we're going to be the leader. That's not always the right move and often it's the wrong move because when a new technology comes along, there's going to be a few kinks that you've got to iron out. There's going to be a lot of big risks. There's going to be a lot of problems. So if it's a sustaining technology, one that just improves what's already happening, you actually better be a follower. Let somebody else lead. Let somebody else make all the stuff ups. You can learn from them and just take the best stuff and apply that new sustaining technology to optimize what you're already doing. So what Clayton says, if what you have is a sustaining technology, it doesn't really matter if you're the one leading and going forward in it. However, when it comes to disruptive innovation, it pays huge dividends to be the one leading from the front. And often, the established firms fail to take the lead, as we're soon going to find out, um, because customers of established firms hold them captive and disruptive technologies facilitated the emergence of new markets. At the very beginning, they're not worth 800 million bucks or a billion bucks, which is worth the big company's time. The very beginning is those little tinkerers and entrepreneurs mm. sort of making the way. Um, and they're the ones who are making this disruptive innovation, common a few arrows in their backs, but in doing so, they're creating a moat around their business. If you remember back to our episode, No Rules Rules, about Reed Hastings and about Netflix versus Blockbuster, Blockbuster, massive, established, killing it. 
in terms of video rental and then Netflix comes along with an online thing where you send it in the mail and then you mail it back and get another one mailed to you and it was just this weird, very niche, very small thing and Reed walked into the blockbuster offices and said, just, here, you know, you can have us. <laughs> we'll, yeah. we'll, you know, Take us, me, baby. Give us, a, give us a bit of cash and we're all yours and Blockbuster just thought, this is just a tiny little piece of shit. They're losing money. They've got almost no customers. It's not worth it to us. Obviously, just fast forward that obviously things uh, went very differently and Blockbuster's cooked and Netflix is killing it. Yeah, companies sort of turned their nose up at the small little upstart companies who were playing around and tinkering with new things but yeah, we all know what happened <laughs> yeah. to the old Blockbuster. I think he was laughing, having a cigar, laughing at the, the, the old Blockbuster bankruptcies, as you would. And the big reason of this is because the internal resource allocation can be very backward. So, let's just put ourselves in the perspective of that big company like your Barnes & Noble or like your Blockbuster. When you're big, let's just sit in their, in their room and just think about mm. how decisions get made. And that way, we can understand why they're not the ones leading in this disruptive innovation. The first one you're probably thinking, if you're a hotshot bigwig in the ivory tower of a big company, if you make a decision to invest in this one random new upstart disruptive technology that is a bit of a piece of shit with worth no money at the moment, if it fails, that's your ass on the line. Your career is, you're going to be laughed at as the person who really flopped at this thing that was showed no promise and was going nowhere. So, it's much better for you to just play it safe in the sustaining realm, not the disruptive realm. That's it. There's competing priorities, a tug of war of resources. You got all these little ideas that are bubbling up, right? If you're a middle management, you might come up with a few ideas. Your uh, direct reports might come up with all these sorts of ideas. And whoever you invest in um, and sponsor, the things that are flops is going to look poorly on you. And the things that kick ass are going to make you look like a superstar. So quite naturally, from that perspective, you're going to be probably choosing the ones that are sustaining innovations. You've got a good understanding, good, mm. good likelihood that this thing's actually going to improve uh, the profits of the company. So that's probably good management in, in the old paradigm. If you actually go to the, as a middle manager and you're you know, speaking up to your boss and you're saying, hey, look, we don't know what's going to happen. We're just going to take a big swing here. We're going to take a punt. We don't <laughs> really know what's happening. There's no market that's been discovered yet. But it could be, could be a very big market. Like, eh, you're probably going to get laughed away. That's right. Similarly, that's the bottom-up version. Similarly, from the top down, if you think about where your resources are coming from as a company, well, you've got your big customers. All your big customers, they don't want this new, tiny, random new piece of shit. So that's them out. Investors, they want you to do what's going to make them money. So they probably don't want you to take the big risks on something unproven as well. You've got the board. Similarly, they want you to play it safe. They want you to build and optimize what you're already doing as opposed to taking it something from completely left field. So from the top down, all the decisions are pushing you towards playing it safe in the sustaining realm as opposed to going to this new wild disruptive realm. Even the biggest companies have targets, growth targets, 3%, 4% per year. If you're a billion-dollar company, how much is that? Showing math. 30, 40 mil. Yeah, that's right. 30, 40 million dollars a year. These are your targets. These yeah. are the things that you're looking for to grow your company. When you know Barnes & Noble, let's imagine we're just sitting on the board of that. Amazon's just started um, and the market there is you know, under a yeah. million dollars. Yeah, a couple and hundred grand. When this brings up and you go, hey, we're going to be able to make a couple hundred grand in the next two years <laughs> on this new technology. Yeah. You're gonna, you're gonna get, you, you'd literally get laughed at, wouldn't you? You'd literally get laughed at. You know, However, yeah. not so funny a few years later when that little t- couple hundred grand, uh, something else happens entirely. The problem for these big companies is that markets that do not exist cannot be analyzed. So you can't say, okay, we're selling books, 
in Barnes and Noble with our big stores. There's, oh, you know what? We can actually sell books online now. There's no way to measure what percentage or what dollar figure or what revenue or what profit you can make off this. And because it's too hard to measure and um, and quantify, you're probably not going to do it. And that's why the little guys, you know, your little Amazon, you know, big Jeff sitting in his office with that big sign out, out the back. I remember, you know, those photos that the little guys, they can play around in these markets because they don't have all of these competing priorities. Yeah, you, you, if you said to the board, we're going to have 50% of this market that doesn't exist. Yeah. <laughs> 50% of zero is still zero. It's still zero. We're, <laughs> you know, different for the startups because uh, a lot of them are uh, playing around and tinkering through trial and error with these disruptive technologies. They're, you know, dealing with uncertainty in a very different way. Because inherently, startups are uncertain. They're just playing around, trying to figure things out. Um, and what they're doing is they're sort of making and discovering a new uh, a new market, sort of, together with the supplier, with the customer. They're figuring things out because these disruptive technology at the start, no one really knows what the hell it's going to do, what you know, what effect it's going to have on the world and it's very unknowable. So no business plan can actually figure out what what's going to, where the company's going to be in three years' time. The little guys are best positioned to take on this challenge because really it's not about executing. It's not about being a success from day one. It's not about pointing to the bottom line and saying, this is why this worked and this is how much money it's made us. They know that any disruptive technology is going to be wrought with failure. And so it's, they're the ones who have the ability to you know, take the hits and get back up and keep running. They're going to learn from their failures. They're going to adapt and they're going to modify their approach and keep trying and keep trying and keep tinkering, learning from trial and error until it can somehow click. So at the very start, they're just playing around with this new disruptive technology, don't know what the hell they're doing, probably taking very small markets that the big players, they don't really care about. Mm. Barnes and Noble didn't care about these little tiny uh, fringe people who are on the internet, these nerds and geeks who are buying yeah. books online, who cares about <laughs> them? They don't make money and they, they smell and all that, they were thinking on the board. <laughs> but before you know it... Uh, they went from that down market and then they slowly went up market. Think about Amazon quite literally. They started on books mm-hmm. and they went up markets pretty much everything. Yeah, literally, <laughs> the everything, everything store. store. <laughs> so, the established firm's views down market and the entrance firm's views up market, they're totally asymmetrical. From down looking up, you look, you're just seeing gold and crown jewels <laughs> and from the top looking down, you're just seeing crud and geeks and nerds and, and, and losers and everything like that. And because of that, it's really the entrants who are in the best position to take on the new market. And an interesting element of this, uh, of this disruptive technology, this development is that they're on this wild trajectory where it starts off as something that is kind of meaningless but all of a sudden, they're just making so many gains. Once they finally worked it out, the improvements and the optimizations, the gains are just kind of taking off at, a, at this crazy exponential rate. So much so that it often really outstrips the market's needs uh, and their expectations. So if you're a big company and you've got this wild investment, you probably don't have the big customers that are going to pay big dollars for it. But it's eventually when these entrants do it and they have this wild technology, eventually the market catches up and all of a sudden they're on top. Yeah, they're overshooting the market, probably giving their customers things that they didn't even know they needed mm. or wanted. Like we didn't know before Netflix that when we get getting our weeklies and our yeah. overnighters at Blockbuster, <laughs> uh, we didn't know how good it would be to have the old Netflix and chill. That's, that's the, old, right. uh, the old subscription model, once that came along, it's so much better than what the established firms have. Um, 
really, there's, there's no point going to Blockbuster as soon as that comes in because, you know, you think at the start they're competing purely on just uh, giving you a movie for the weekend, mm, mm. but it ends up they can't compete on the new capabilities that are being produced by the upstarts. It's almost, it's almost laughable to think about it. If you would take that, you know, 40-minute trip to go to the store, walk around the store, your options are really confined to what they can physically hold in that space. You got to pick... Uh, something that hopefully it's in stock. Hopefully, if it's too popular and everybody wants to watch it, you're not going to be able to watch it. Then you've got to take it home. You've got to rewind it when you're finished if it's the old VHS and then you've got to take it back. It's so much effort compared to literally just flicking on the TV, having infinite choice and choosing whatever you want whenever you want. 60%, man. (laughs) (laughs) I mean, 100%. Bit of a throwback there. But of course, at this point, the established firms... They're jumping on the bandwagon, but it's a little bit too late. Mm. It's a little bit too late. Imagine Barnes and Noble now, like, oh yeah, let's sell books online. Well, that's what they do. They got a website. <laughs> yeah. Probably three years too late, but by that stage, Amazon's got the whole entire market. That's they right. understand the distribution there, and everywhere, right? Like, uh, I'm sure Blockbuster. Oh, I think Blockbuster didn't really do anything. <laughs> they probably they died before they even made it to that point. Yeah, but they, they see the disruptive technology. Go, mm. All right, this is going to be a huge market. Their yeah. analysts come in and say it's going to be worth hundreds and hundreds <laughs> of millions. But you know, it does it? It's pointless at this stage. Uh, things have failed, and the innovator dilemma has taken down the big firm. It's not all doom and gloom here. There's a whole bunch of principles that we've covered, and successful managers like our uh, oil drilling uh, metaphor that we opened the uh, the episode with. Understanding how to drill for oil and where it is, you know, you're going to increase your success rate. In a very similar way, through these principles, managers can be successful Mm. in navigating disruptive technology, actually using it to their advantage. So, if you are a big established company, it's not all doom and gloom. You do have hope. And one nice little shining light to uh, point to as an example was HP. So, Hewlett-Packard, they had... Great experience in the personal computer printer We're going market. Back a while here, uh, <laughs> just for just for context. So HP they obviously started in in printers, right? So they're in they're in printers, uh, but they kind of at the same time they had this experience of the personal computer printers. Then this new disruptive technology came along of uh, these laser uh, inkjet technologies, and so normally the if HP they're killing it with personal computer printers and then they say, hey boss, we've got this inkjet thing that's popped along. Can we get into a bit of laser printing technology here? Most big companies, as we spoke about, would have had all those conflicting reasons why not to do it, but HP took a different approach. Yeah, this is one way most companies can do it. You know, Rather than turn your nose up this little market, this little percentage that doesn't look like much, Instead, they actually created a completely autonomous organizational unit and they were the ones responsible for making the inkjet printer a success. Um, And they actually ended up letting the two businesses compete with each other. Mm. So literally cannibalizing their own business. This is what Steve Jobs famously did as well, right? Mm. Uh, Was prepared to cannibalize his own business. Um, And each behaved classically. Now, you might say, why the hell would you let one of your own businesses (laughs) kill the other? But on the other hand, you'd say... All right, if we don't kill our own business, then someone else, someone else is going to do right. it. We'll end up I mean, with nothing. That's right. So they've, they've spun out this completely different arm of the business effectively and it was really just survival of the fittest, whichever one wins. Imagine if, if Kodak had have done that rather than just saying, oh, digital shit house, it sucks. 
um, we're going to go double down on film. If that is spun out, let's make, you know, we've got Kodak original, let's have Kodak digital. Let's see if we can kill our own company, then someone else wouldn't have done it. Yeah, absolutely. And, and, wouldn't take a hell of a lot of money, right? If you're one of the biggest mm. companies in the world, it's probably a very tiny bet out of uh, all your income. So there's a couple of meta principles that your managers can take to harness these principles. Firstly, you can place projects to develop disruptive technologies in organization small enough to get excited about. So as a big company, you can place projects within the big company to develop disruptive technologies in autonomous organizations that are very small enough to get excited about small mm. opportunities. Yeah, if you think about it, the, the all those conflicting priorities we spoke about, if the investors are looking and you've lost, you know, 2% on this bet, they'd be like, what the hell is going on here? But if you can, you know, manipulate or, you know, frame it in a way that you spin it out and say, oh, we've got this new arm of the business, it's only a little tiny thing, then you invest 2% and you say this thing, oh, if it works, fantastic. If it doesn't work, okay, we're going to shut it down. It kind of just sounds different in the brain of you know the board and the investors and stuff. So if you've spun out this tiny new little small thing where you can get excited about this small opportunity, all of a sudden then maybe people are like, okay, let's have a go at this. Yeah, you like if, uh, at the board, if, if you've got a small part of the business within the one company and they've improved profits by 0.05%, they're not going to, they'll laugh as well. But if it's an autonomous <laughs> mm. company getting excited about small enough markets to matter, mm. you know, you've got a team of five or 10 people and you made a million bucks for the year, mm. you're going to be super excited yeah. about that. <laughs> exactly. Another thing they do is they plan to fail early and inexpensively. So again, placing that small bet, you're not betting that whole company. HP isn't just saying, okay, it's not one or the other. They're not saying, let's kill our company and make this brand new one because that's where the future is. They're just placing that small bet that, hey, if it doesn't work, then nothing really lost. And finally, when they were commercializing disruptive technologies, they find new markets that value the attributes mm. of the disruptive products. So rather than going to your existing customer base, you get your yeah. BD team to start making the calls <laughs> to all your existing customers. Not at all. You're actually mm. uh, in this this new market through emergent discovery. You're finding out new places where your product can actually sit and in doing so, it'd be an entirely new market that you had previously. Pretty exciting. It's pretty good. It's a pretty good way to do it. So, obviously, we started off this the the doom and gloom of the episode of how all these big companies are getting wiped out by these brand new disruptive technologies that one day overtake them. But it doesn't have to be like that. We have shown now that established companies can overcome the innovator's dilemma. So managers can understand what the conflicts are of this innovator's dilemma, which are posed to innovators by conflicting demands and understanding the difference between what's sustaining and what disruptive technologies are and how to resolve them. 